Welcome to the University of Wyoming Today. On this program, you'll hear about what's making the news and about the people and events at UW. You'll also learn about some of the leading research that's taking place at one of the region's top universities. And now, here's today's edition of the University of Wyoming Today. Hi, Jim Kearns with you. We have a lot of interesting things to share with you today, including concerns about cybersecurity. And we'll learn about new research into the relationship between an animal's brain size and its intelligence. But let's go back to last summer, when a Confederate battle flag was removed from the grounds of the state capitol in Columbia, South Carolina. That followed the tragic murders of nine African Americans who were attending a Bible study at a historic Methodist church in Charleston. They were gunned down by a young white racist enamored with Confederate symbols, including the iconic battle flag. University of Wyoming geography professor Gerald Webster has studied political iconography of Southern politics and Confederate symbols for about two decades. He says he was shocked when that battle flag was removed from the Capitol. It's about 75% of white Southerners see the flag as a symbol of heritage and 75% of black Southerners see it as a symbol of, of hatred. So the, the um, contrast is, is just dramatic. The uh, murder in the, in the church took place in a sacred place it took place on a Wednesday night, which is the traditional uh, evening for Bible study you know, in, in the South. And I think it, it touched people in a way that probably no other uh, kind of event could have. Had the uh, murders taken place in a shopping center or a theater, I don't think this would have happened. I think it, it, uh, it so moved people that, that um, you know, given uh, the uh, shooters a love of all things Confederate, particularly the flag, but also um, you know, allusions to apartheid in South Africa and segregation in, you know, in, the, in the Deep South that I think very specific to South Carolina, it, it moved people enough to do it. I don't think um, that the, the window of opportunity is still open. Now, there'll, there'll be more debates in, I'm sure, in uh, Alabama and uh, Mississippi in particular, um, but I don't think that uh, the, the same thing is going to happen there. And geography professor Gerald Webster says religion plays a big role in Southerners' attitudes toward that flag. And it really goes back to the myth of the lost cause. In the Right after the Civil War in 1865, there was an effort to sort of define what the purpose of, of the war was. A lot of Southerners saw the war as a, a religious war. I mean, literally as the South being the bastion of Christianity and the, the North being anti-biblical. So after the war, the fact that they had lost, for a lot of Southerners, this was that God had, had um, left them. And so to come up with an explanation that, that could fit into it, basically that God was testing the South and that the South would quote-unquote rise again. So that you know, common uh, saying the South will rise again really emerges from, from that um, time period. Listening to the University of Wyoming Today, I'm Jim Kearns. Hardly a week goes by when we don't hear about hackers 
breaking into and doing damage to critical systems in government and corporations, such as Home Depot, eBay, and Target. In fact, some leaders are describing such security threats as one of the most dangerous issues facing the nation today. Jim Caldwell heads the computer science department at the University of Wyoming. He says a lot more needs to be done to defend against these types of attacks. If you can detect when you're being compromised, that's part of the problem is, is, is that you can't really, it's difficult to tell when you're being compromised. And some of the latest techniques are applying artificial intelligence techniques to try to sort of learn the normal behavior of an overall system. And then when anomalies are observed to say, to, you know, to put up a red flag and say, hey, somebody better look into this. If you normally send email every day to a dozen people or your core group and all of a sudden your email starts going out to a hundred different people, then probably something's going on. Then maybe your email account has been, has been compromised. And computer scientist Jim Caldwell says cyber defense is the fastest growing area of computer science right now. So everyone is aware of it. Uh, there's a huge shortage of people who are trained in the area. And there's a um, program administered by the National Security Agency and the Department of Homeland Security under which uh, the University of Wyoming could gain a, uh, a kind of an accreditation from them in which we would be a center of academic excellence in cybersecurity. And we've looked at it, and um, we just don't have the resource to achieve that, that, that certification at this point. But if we had another two faculty, one or two faculty members in that area, then we certainly could, could achieve that certification. And without such protection, Wyoming's agencies, businesses, and citizens are at risk of losing millions of dollars, not to mention damaged reputations. Scientists have long believed that species with large brains relative to the size of their bodies are more intelligent than those with smaller brains. But there was little experimental evidence to support that. University of Wyoming zoology professor Sarah Benson Amram is the lead author of an experiment published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It shows that animals with larger brains are better problem solvers. And what we did was we looked at carnivores and we presented a huge range of different carnivore species with a problem-solving task and asked, are those species that have um, a relatively larger brain better at solving this problem? So our largest result is that, in fact, yes, um, if you look at relative brain size, it does predict problem-solving ability, at least in the carnivores that we tested with this, the puzzle that we gave them. And we did look across the order carnivora very broadly. So we tested 140 individuals from 39 different species of mammalian carnivores. Everything from mongooses and fennec foxes up to um, 
bears, polar bears, grizzly bears, etc., hyenas, uh, a lot of the big cats, lions, and um, a lot of social carnivores like wolves. So we tried to get a pretty broad overview of the taxa. Zoology professor Sarah Benson Amram says the researchers also looked into whether species living in larger groups are better at solving problems. If you're an individual in a social group, you need to know who else is in your group. You need to be able to know your rank relative to theirs, whether you can be aggressive to them or if you need to be submissive, and whether those relationships change over time. So there's a lot to think about in terms of interacting with other individuals in a social group, and that takes some degree of intelligence. And there's a lot of support for this idea, especially within the primate literature, less so in the carnivore literature. And so we wanted to ask whether, uh, across the carnivores, if those species that live in larger average groups, have larger average group sizes, are better at solving this problem than more solitary species or less social species. And surprisingly, um, we didn't find any effect of social group size. So that we didn't, we weren't able to support that hypothesis in this study. And in case you're wondering, bears were the best problem solvers in the group. I'm Jim Kearns, and that's it for my time. Thanks for yours. That's it for this time. Join us again for the next edition of the University of Wyoming Today.